Welcome to the podcast of Walking in the Promises. Walking in the Promises is a ministry of God's grace expressed through the unfolding of His Word. The following message is by our founder, Marcelo Tolopilo. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the, the freedom to come together in safety, but also in the power of the Spirit, Lord. We, we depend on you to teach us through your Spirit. We ask that you would do that through your Word, and Lord, we just want to worship you in truth this morning. We thank you for this morning, and we pray your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 4 through 6, actually, today. But this is the preeminent passage, as we've said, in all of Scripture, calling parents and really even grandparents to mentor their children spiritually, or to use New Testament nomenclature to disciple our children. And recognizing our passage for what it is, a text exhorting us to disciple our children, the approach that the Holy Spirit takes here to teach us through this scripture is a little different than what we would expect. In verse 7, if you've got your Bible open there, you can read along with me, we have the central charge, the command, the injunction, which reads, and you shall teach them, the them there is not a reference to our children, but it's a reference to verse 6, these words, and these words are defined for us in verse 1, they are the commandments, the statutes, the judgments of the Lord. So we're talking about God's law, God's word. So we are told, you shall teach them God's words, diligently to your sons and shall talk of them. This is our command to train our children, to teach our children the precepts of the Lord. And the word diligently in verse 7 is an extremely forceful command in the Hebrew. Okay, this is not a suggestion. This is a divine command, a divine imperative. And if you're a parent, a Christian parent, you're locked into this. This is... Your job. This is your mandate. And I know that goes against a lot of what you hear in the secular world. Val and I driving up here this morning, we were just talking about how so many people really need to have a Copernicum revolution when it comes to this principle. Remember Copernicus? He was that Polish genius who redrew the ancient model of the geocentric solar system. You know, he said, that's all wrong. The, the earth is not in the middle. The sun is. And that literally rocked the world, right? I mean, everything was different from that point on. The way we understood ourselves, the way we understood God, the way we understood creation and everything around it. It was a radical shift in thinking. And we need to have a radical shift in thinking because the world keeps telling us that if you're a parent, you're powerless. That... You need to let your children make the decisions of where they want to go to school, how they want to be taught, where they want to eat. That you are there to provide, you're basically a glorified biological vending machine. You're there to provide money and goods and services and transportation, but by golly, your kids are in charge. And they, they wouldn't even want to listen to you in the first place. What makes you think that? And that is not the message we hear in the Bible. God says right here, I am commanding you, I am charging you with the spiritual discipleship of your children. That's God's command. And we need to have a Copernican revolution, a radical shift in our, our thinking when it comes to children. Parents are there to be shepherds to their children. And that's how God has wired parents. That's how God has wired children to be together and to follow and to lead, all right? So this is the command. It's a straightforward command. Now, that being the nature of our text, to diligently teach our children God's precepts, you would think that following that command, we would have a how-to section. That we would have an instruction section on methodology and how to get inside our kids' heads and how to tweak them and fix them into discipleship. You know, because listen, I'm a parent and I know how I think I want to amend their thinking. I want to adjust their behavior. I want to revamp, rework and remodel. Don't you? That's what we spend all day doing. 
Don't do this. Do do that. We see behavior that we don't like. We want to change it. We see attitudes that we don't like. We want to transform them or adjust them. (laughs) Right? We basically want to extol virtues that we want them to have. And so we're constantly tinkering and fixing and intervening. And that's part of our job. But. God's approach in this discipleship passage, the most important discipleship passage regarding children in the entire Bible, is different. It diverges from that. Because God turns his attention, not to the children, but to the heads of households. To the moms and dads and grandparents and what he wants to do in their heart in order to reach their children and transform them. So here's the sequence, guys. God wants to change us so that we may become catalysts of change in the lives of our children. And you know what? That seems odd to us, doesn't it? Because we tend to lean to the pragmatic, God, just show me what I need to do to change my kids. God says, I understand that, but my math is different. I want to work on your heart. I want to change your attitudes, your behavior, your inside person, so that you may be a catalyst again for change in their lives. This is what I call divine math. Two plus two are five. And it's all over the pages of scripture. We're taught that if you desire to be great, Jesus said you need to become like a servant. You got to become like a child, like the least of these. You want to be first? Then you need to be what? last. You want to find yourself? You got to lose yourself. Often God's thinking conflicts with ours, right? The Lord states in Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, great passage of scripture I'm sure you all know, where the Lord declares to the prophet, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We want to disciple our kids. We want to fix them through discipleship. God says, I want to transform you, mom and dad, and change your kids also through you. And so God's focus in this key discipleship passage, again, it's not so much on the children, although they're the end game. But it's on parents and grandparents. In other words, those who bear the responsibility of raising the next generation of disciples. And so God gives us this, guys. He gives to us, the disciple-making parents, four foundational principles, four basics, four transformative principles to continually pursue. This is not a one-shot deal here, guys. This is a lifestyle. But four principles that will equip us for this great task of impacting and training our children to be the next generation of men and women who love and follow God. And this morning, we're going to look at two of those principles and save the other two for next week. And again, this will be counterintuitive to some of you. It may not feel quite right, because when it comes to the issue of raising our children, as I'm like you, I, I want to I turn to the technique. Give me the bottom line. I want the techniques. And you know what? Techniques can easily become legalism. God is after something much bigger than just changing the behavior of your kids so you're not embarrassed by them. God is in it to change you and to change their hearts permanently. Not just give you a technique for behavior modification. And so, like I said, it'll feel not necessarily intuitive, but the first two principles kind of illustrate this very beautifully. What is the most important thing you and I can do as parents to disciple our children, to successfully mentor our children? You know what the greatest thing we can do is? To love God. God says, love me, love me first, love me most. And I began to wonder about that. It's like, why does God say that? This is the most important familial passage, and he embeds that commandment to love him in this passage. Why does he do that? You want to know why? I believe that no one can spark a love for God in the hearts of children like those two first important people in their lives. 
mom and dad. I'll tell you something, guys. When our children see that loving God is genuine in our hearts, that we are passionate about it, about it, that we pursue it, you know what? They're drawn to that because God wired them to be that way for you. You and I are the most important influencers of our children. And when it comes to religion, regardless whether we're talking about Islam or Judaism or Christianity, the data, the secular data by sociologists tell us that our kids respond most to parents. That's because that's part of God's creative hardwiring in you and me. So loving God is the first and greatest thing that you can do in order to mentor your children. The second thing is, is that we have to know God, love God in truth. Therefore, we must continually become people of the word. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So that is kind of counterintuitive. We're talking about discipling our kids. What's the greatest thing you can do? It's not some new approach. It's love God and love God in truth by taking in the word. That's God's math. Now, let me just throw in a little caveat here, a little warning. Because sometimes when I say, okay, God wants to change you in order to change your children, it almost sounds like the parent needs to become passive at that point. We become Keswick's, you know, just let go and let God. That's not what this is calling for. It's calling for us to aggressively pursue them in discipleship. Verse 7, it's a command. You do this. And knowing that as we pursue them, God is the one affecting the change in us and in them. That's, that's just the Christian life, right? Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, right? And it is no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. Hmm. Really, Paul, so is it you who live or is it Christ who lives in you? And the answer is yes. Colossians 1, 28, 29, he's talking about ministry. In verse 28, he says, My greatest burden and joy and duty is to present every man complete, mature in Christ. And in verse 29, he says, And for this purpose also I labor and strive, he says. Uh, the word labor there means to exhaust yourself by toiling. He says, in order to bring men fully to maturity, I work my fingers to the bone. Kind of like Eric, working a full-time job as a vet and then being a full-time pastor. He's working his fingers to the bone. He's working hard. And then he says, Paul says, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And you would ask again, okay, Paul, is it Christ's power working in you, or is it your laboring? And he would tell us, yes. That's the Christian life. And you, mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, God wants to affect great change in your children, your grandchildren, but he wants to work in you, and you need to Pursue them in discipleship and trust Him for the change. So we are not given license to be passive parents. In fact, that's one of the greatest evils that you can do as a parent is to not care. To release your children for others to raise. That's not God's design. Now guys, I believe that the greatest gift that we can receive as Christian adults, as Christian parents, as Christian grandparents, as aunts and uncles, the greatest gift that we can see and visualize and receive is that of our children coming to know and love the Lord our God, right? I mean, I want, and I, I praise God that my four love Jesus Christ. I mean, that's an unspeakable burden lifted from my shoulders because that was a burden that I had for them from the moment they were conceived. We have a church full of these little people. And they're amazing. They're beautiful. They're lovely. Zeze is just singing the song for me. Yeah, let her sing. And I wish for her, I desire for her to come into an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because as she does, as yours do... They're kind of stuck with us forever too, right? 
because we're bound at that point. That's our greatest gift, our greatest longing. But guys, that has to be a deliberate pursuit. I think one of the most dangerous, most awful mistakes that Christian parents can make is assuming that our children will be saved because they're born to us. That is, they're born to a Christian home. And because we take them to church and the church's programs. So we entrust them to the system, as it were. Listen, I'm all for raising our kids in church and having godly youth pastors. The more the godly people that touch their lives, the better my children are off. But we can't relinquish our parenting duty and authority to any system, any program. That's been the pattern, listen, of the church for the last 50, 60, 70 years. And we are reaping some terrible consequences for that. Because it's not God's primary design. There have been several evangelical organizations, the two mainline denominations, the Assemblies of God and the Southern Baptists, Josh McDowell's ministry, the Barna Group, for example, that have done studies along these lines. And they tell us that well over half of the young people that come from evangelical homes abandon the faith in their 20s. I believe the Barna Group, which is a Christian research group, has the data at somewhere between 52 and 53 percent. Josh McDowell in his ministry has it up in the 94 percentile. And the Southern Baptists and the Assemblies of God are somewhere in the 60s and 70s. Now, I don't know how you can quantify that with any accuracy. But what it does tell us, the general data tells us, is that half of our kids, at least, let's be conservative and take that lower number, half of our kids are leaving the faith when they get to college or in their college years. Are you kidding me? That tells me a couple of things. One, those young people that are walking away were never Christians. First John 2.19, right? It says they went out from us because they were not of us, and they went out from us to prove that they were not of us. Believers don't desert Jesus because Jesus didn't desert believers. The other thing that tells me is that our approach to young people has been off. It's not working. And what have we been doing? We have essentially said, let the church save and disciple your children. And the church has an important part in that. Relinquish your authority, your gravitas to us. We'll lead them to salvation. We'll disciple them. That's not working. And the reason that's not working is because God designed it to be the other way around. For mom and dad to lead their children to God and in God, and then for the church to come alongside and support that as a support ministry to what's happening in the home. We're not told anywhere in the Bible to relinquish our kids to anybody, let alone the world. We are to pursue them. And it's a great, great pursuit, guys, because the whole process is joyous. But I think everybody in this room would agree, having said all that, that our children cannot inherit our salvation, right? They cannot inherit our biblical understanding. You can't pack it up in a package and bequeath it like you would a piece of real estate or something, like you would assets, money, hard assets. Our children cannot inherit our salvation, our biblical understanding. And I heard Luis Palau say this. Luis Palau is a world-renowned Argentine evangelist. He's been at it for decades. But he said this before, an evangelistic campaign that he held in Scotland. And he said this statement, and I'll tell you what the statement is in a second, but I don't know if you know anything about the history of Scotland, but we're coming up to the Reformation. The Reformation was huge in Scotland. John Knox and many others, and, and the whole country was set on fire with revival. And Scotland is a country that has known the, the heights of spiritual revival, but also now the depths of lifeless religion, frigid religion. 
It is a postmodern, post-Christian country, and the evangelical church there is tiny. I think it's under 1%. It's not that big of a place. And Luis Palau, looking at that spiritual landscape, said something very poignant and, and very interesting. He said, you know what, guys? God has no grandchildren. He's absolutely right. Each generation, each individual within each generation has to come to that crisis point where they either receive Christ or reject him. And Christianity is only one chain link away from going extinct. Now, that's not going to happen because Jesus promised to build his church, right? But Christianity is one chain link away from extinction in your home and my home. Our responsibility as parents and grandparents, guys, is to pursue our children and grandchildren with discipleship. We must lead them to God and in God. Now, how do we do that? We're talking about, in essence, passing on our faith to them. We've said we can't bequeath it to them. So how do we pass on the baton from our generation to their generation? Well, implicit in the idea of passing on a baton or a torch is that there is a baton to pass on, right? Before we can effectively raise a godly generation offspring, we have to pursue godliness ourselves because we can't expect our children to follow where we do not lead them. And this is our calling, guys. Our calling is to pursue a passionate, intimate relationship with the living God through the truth and by the same means lead our children in that same path. And there's no passage in Scripture that equips us towards that end or calls us to that end than Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. I want to look at 4 and 5 with the balance of time we have this evening. And look at those first two principles. We'll mention them again. This is from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the great Shema of Israel. And Shema here means to hear with a view towards obedience. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. There's one true God. This is so amazing. They were about to go into Canaan, a paganistic stew of polytheism. And Moses says, God wants me to tell you people that there's only one true God, the right theology of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And Jesus added to that what? With all your mind. That's the call. To love God with everything that you've got. This is what Moses told the people. And 1,400 years after Moses said that, a scribe came up to Jesus, an expert in the law, Jewish law, and said, Rabbi, what is the most important commandment in all of the Bible? You know what he was asking for? He was asking for a life priority list of one. Give me the top thing. What is the one thing I need to do to pursue? And Jesus said what? The greatest is this. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, strength, might, and mind. That's the greatest commandment in all the Bible. And again, it's embedded in the most important familial passage in all the Bible. This is our chief goal, guys. Our chief end is to love God with our entire being. That is the greatest thing we can do as parents, as grandparents, to allow our children to see that vivid, alive, organic relationship we have with the living God. Now, the question remains is, okay, we are to love God. How do we do that? What's the roadmap for loving God? He tells us, verse 6, and these words. What words? We just talked about it. The words of the law. The words of God. You know what, guys? The word of God is the roadmap for loving God. It is the roadmap for knowing God. And to know God in truth is to truly love him. I told you guys once, I I was at this retreat speaking at a camp. And uh, I was talking about loving God and walking with Jesus and I had this lady come up to me after my first session, and she said, you know, I want to do just what you said. I want to love Jesus. I want to know Jesus. But she said, I want to know him apart from the dead letter of the word. And I thought, did you get up and go get a latte while I was here? Because 
That is the exact opposite, I said, of what I am teaching and what Scripture is teaching. You, if you allow your intuition to shape who you think God is, guess what? You're going to come up with an idol because our heart is desperately wicked, deceitful, above all else. What we need is a pure source of truth from God so that we can understand who he is. I told this dear lady, I said, ma'am, obviously you're, you're married, you've got uh, teenage children. I said, how did you fall in love with your husband? She looked at me kind of like, what's that got to do with the price of wool in China? You know? And I said, well, how did you meet your husband? How did you fall in love with him? She said, well, I met him, I liked him, there was an obvious attraction, and then I spent time with him. Mm-hmm. And so what happened during that time? Well, I found out that, you know, he, he really is kind to animals. That's important to me. They lived up in horse country up here in Temecula. So that's good. That's good. Well, what else did you find out? Well, I found out that he loves children. And I wanted to have a lot of children. And, you know, I found out that he loves the Cubs. And I'm a Cubby fan and all this kind of stuff. And I said, oh, okay, so this is what happened. You were attracted to him, but you learned stuff about him, his character, his virtues, his personality, that made you basically wrap your heart around that man, right? He said, that's exactly true. I said, it's, it's no different with God. We may be attracted to him, but the only way we can know him is to find out what's true about him, and what's true about him is in his word. It's the only way we can know him. To know him is to love him. You know, you can find out stuff about God from creation, right? You know, as you teach, you know, biology and go on your excursions, I'm sure, Josh, you're struck all the time. You look up at a, at a night sky in a remote place and you see the Milky Way and you're overwhelmed with God's immenseness. He created that with a word. Or you look at a mighty waterfall and you feel its thunder and you think, man, God must be powerful. Or a person may look at a, a beautiful redwood and say, God is creative and generous. Look at this beautiful thing. So old, so alive. But you know, a person can look at all those things, the night sky, the thunder of a waterfall, the, the beauty of a, the tallest tree, and nowhere in that scenery will he ever or she ever read the words, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That takes special revelation. To know that God is a redeeming God, a God of love. That's why we're going out, right? That's why we have the Great Commission. We have to tell people the special revelation of who God is and how he saves and for us to know him, we have to know him in truth. And that means, guys, we have to become men and women of the word. And look at verse 6. And these words, which I am commanding you, shall be on your what? Your heart. Now that's a word we got to kind of dust off, guys, because it's got a lot of cultural baggage to it. When you and I hear the word heart or see a representation of a heart, what do you and I normally think about? Love. Love of what kind? Emotional love, romantic love, right? As soon as we recover from New Year's Day, we're going to get bombarded with what? Valentine's Day, right? And they're going to have hearts all over the place with little chubby cubits shooting arrows and getting everybody all twitterpated and confused. And they're going to sell you hearts that are made of, of chocolate, diamond hearts, cake hearts, spam hearts, hearts made out of spam. What, what is spam? And I'm not talking about the internet spam. I'm talking about that loafy pig meat that's unidentifiable. I guess we could run a couple of DNA tests and find out what you know, kind of animal, but... They'll take hearts and appeal to your emotions and they'll sell you anything. You know, they'll sell you dinner for two. They'll sell you chocolate. They'll sell you jewelry. They'll sell you a vacuum. And say, if you really love your spouse, there's a percentage of guys 
that are going to be looking for vacuums on Valentine's Day, and they're going to see a heart by that one, and they're going, oh, this is, because I really love my wife. She knows how much I will love her now, but I got her a Dyson. <laughs> we associate the word heart with just the emotions of love, and that's okay. That's part of the, the Hebrew meaning of this word. But the Hebrew word is much broader than that. In Hebrew, the word heart is not only the seat of the emotions, and often they use a different word. They use a word that is literally bowels, and, and that doesn't translate to our culture. That's why we go with hearts. You know, I love you with all my bowels doesn't really strike up the romantic notions, you know. So uh, the word heart in Hebrew is the seat of the emotions. That's where we feel, but it's also the seat of the intellect and the volition as well. It's who you really are. It's the inward you. It's where you think. It's where you feel. It's where you will to do. That's your heart. And notice what God says. I want you to take these words, my words, my law, my word, and let it saturate your inner being. Pour it in. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, right? Colossians 3.16. Pour it in so that it controls the way you formulate your thoughts so that it fuels your emotions, so that it drives you to do, to behave, to act. God is telling us to allow his word to absolutely saturate our inner being. We are to be becoming a people, men and women, of the word. And there's a tremendous benefit, guys, to this. I think you know, we often read this text and we, we just kind of read through it quickly and, and neglect a lot of the beauty that God has put here for us to enjoy. By becoming men and women of the word, some wonderful things happen. Go back to verse 1. Let's just do a real quick scan of these first three verses and pick up some of these thoughts. It says, now this is the commandment, this is Moses speaking, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. Now stop right there. Why was Moses instructed, commissioned, entrusted with teaching the law of God to the people of God. He tells us right here, the next few words, that you might what? Do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. They were to know the word of God so that they might obey the word of God. And guys, that's a tremendous blessing. Do you realize how much time people spend groping in the dark for meaning? The world lives like that. One person will say, well, I believe this. No, I believe that. No, I believe something in between. And nobody knows who's right. They're all self-authenticating. They're groping in the dark. They don't know where they're going. That's the essence of pagan religions. You grope in the dark hoping to find something to placate them so that they don't destroy you. God says, no, no, no. I want you to have my word so that you may walk in it. I want you to know what's good and right. I want you to know what's beautiful and lovely. My word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. So God gave the Jews, the Israelites, his word, his law, so that they might obey the law. And that knowledge and obedience would result in three very special things. Let me just quickly outline them for you. They were to know the law so that they might obey the word, that law, and that would result in them impacting their children and their children's children. Look at verse 2. So that... This is why you are to know and obey, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God. Do you see the generational thing there? God says you are to know the law and obey the law so that your son may look at the law in your life and say, that's true. That's true. And therefore, we put ourselves, by knowing and obeying, we put ourselves in a position to impact. Another thing. Notice the term there, might fear the Lord your God. It's easy to overread that or to just pass over that. And fear is another one of those words that we have to unpack a little bit. Because we think, especially at this time of year, when you hear fear, what do you think of? Horror. Right? You think of frightfulness. 
You think of shaking in your boots. That's not quite the meaning of the word here. Although there is plenty in the Lord to be frightened by that would make us shake in our boots. So one of these days, I'm going to do a study. I have done a study. I'm going to just preach it to you of what happened to the most godly people in the Bible who were exposed to the fringes of God's glory. Not the full frontal view of God's glory, but just the fringes of it. You know what happened? They were overwhelmed. John, the the beloved apostle, the one who leaned on Jesus' breast, probably the first cousin of Jesus, one of his most intimate people on this earth, when he saw him for how he is today, Revelation chapter 1, the apocalypse, he saw a vision of Jesus. And you know what? That Jesus had white woolen hair and burning laser eyes and feet as molten bronze, speaking of judgment, and his garments were whiter than snow, so white that they were brighter than the noonday sun, and he couldn't look at it, and he saw this vision of Jesus, his friend here on earth, and he says, I fell at his feet as a dead man. Overwhelming. The cool thing, and this is for another time, but Jesus came over to him and touched him and says, don't be afraid. I'm on your side. But there's plenty in God, because he is so awesome, do you frighten them? But that's, that's not the, the idea behind the word fear here. Um, it's also used in other places to speak of obeying the Lord. For instance, in the book of Job, Job 1.1, it says that there was a man of us whose name was Job, and he, he feared the Lord. What does that mean? He turned away from evil. There's a sense that because we know who God is, We want to please him and walk away from the things that displease him. I I read this great little quote from Spurgeon this week. He says, fear of God is a quiet grace which leads a man along a choice road. Isn't that good? Fear of God is a quiet grace which leads a man along a choice road. That's part of the idea here, but the idea here is more transcendent than that. What this word has here as part of its meaning is reverential awe. It is to be absolutely in awe of who God is. Overwhelmed with joy and praise. I was always the kind of obnoxious uncle. I only had my niece and my nephew through my older brother. And I I love these guys. They're fully grown people now and... But we always had a special relationship. And one day, my brothers, my two brothers and I took Monica and Stevie, uh, very young at that time, we took them to their first Dodger game. Okay, That's a big deal, Major League Baseball game, you know. They weren't familiar with the traditions of baseball. So I said, you know what? I'm a very powerful guy, Monica, Stevie. They're looking, ha, ha, with Uncle Marcel, you're so funny. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have this whole stadium of people stand up and sing a song when I want them to. And they're thinking, he's been eating mushrooms off the lawn again, you know. I go, no, no. In fact, let's set a time. Let's, the seventh inning. At the bottom of the seventh inning, with the last out, I'm going to make the people, there was like 50,000 plus people in Chavez Ravine on that day. It was against Cincinnati. And I said, I'm going to have them stand up and sing with me. So, you know what happens. You know, it's a seventh inning stretch. And so, the last out comes up in the seventh inning, and I stand up, and I put my arms out like this, and I say, arise and sing with me. And just on cue, it was like, dun, 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 take me out to the ball game. And the whole of Dodger Stadium stood up and sang with me. And I looked over at my nephew and niece, and they were like. <laughs> it only lasted for about five minutes, but it was worth the price of admission. <laughs> awe. Kind of like reverential awe. It's really the kind of awe that a child would have for his parent. You know, where it's like, whoa. Mom and dad are strong and big and. I guess dad is big. Mom is, is strong. <laughs> I remember walking. It was a winter day, and I walked for exercise to clear my mind. And 
I passed by this little park and there was a dad there with his two kids playing. And the dad was making like a, like a Frankenstein, you know, monster going after the kids like this, going, Arr. And the little boy must have been five or six, kindergarten age. And then the little pipsqueak was about, the little girl was all of three, three and a half maybe. She had a little winter coat on, overcoat. And the dad was chasing the, the boy, and the boy was mocking the dad, saying, you can't get me. And, of course, he kept like 20 feet of distance between himself and the dad, right? And the dad was like 6'3", 6'4", big guy. And then the little one who had chutzpah. You know what chutzpah means? It's a Yiddish term that means nerve. And the definition, the old definition goes that chutzpah is a guy who would kill his mother and father and then in the course of the trial appeal to the judge for mercy because he is, after all, an orphan. Okay, that's, that's nerve. This little one had nerve. And she came up and, and ran up behind her dad as he was going in the direction of his son. And she just stood up right behind him, made little fists out of those little, those pudgy fists and kind of shaking like this. And she said... You come back here, you big daddy. <laughs> and the dad turned around and scooped her up and started kissing her neck and she's squealing in delight. You know what? There was a certain aspect of that dad that was scary. He's big and strong, open any size jar. <laughs> but he's the same guy that would pick her up to play or when she hurt herself, or when she didn't feel good. The same dad who would put, brush her little teeth and put her into bed and tuck her in and read her a story. And he's big, he's powerful, but he's my daddy. That's the idea here. The Israelites were to know the word so that they might know God as he desires to be known. In fear, reverential awe. So they were to know the word so that they might obey the word, so that they might impact their children, so that they might come to know God as he desires to be known. And fourthly, so that they might experience his blessing. And this is found at the end of verse 2, and that your days may be prolonged. That concept is amplified in verse 3. The idea is this. They were to know the word and obey the word so that they might experience all in the full magnitude of God's blessing. Do you know that God wants to bless you guys? Do you know that that's what his heart beats with? To be a blessing, a benediction to his people? In chapter 5, verse 29, he, he laments to Moses. He says, oh, and that's a very expressive word in the Hebrew. It's used, for example, in Psalm 55, when David is surrounded by his enemies and worried for his life. He says, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be free. Oh, I wish I could do that. God says, oh, that my people had such a heart in them, he says. A heart of obedience and reverence for me. That, why? That it might be well with them and their sons forever. God's heart beats to bless his people. And he wants to bless us. He wants to give us his maximum blessings. Listen, I want all of that. I'm not going to kid you. I'm in the market for all of that. I want to know the word of God so that I may obey it. Doesn't your heart beat to obey the Lord? That's the heart of a child. I want to know the word so that I may impact my children. I want to know the word so that I may know God as he desires to be known. And I want to know the word so that I may experience his great and multiplied blessings. I want every inch of that. I want every square of that. I want it all. But before... We can begin to experience those things and experience them in increasing number. We must put the word of God where? On our heart. We must become men and women of the word increasingly. Guys, there's no shortcut around this. If you want to disciple your children, and that's a rhetorical question because you should, and if you don't, you need to. Because this is God's injunction and command to you. If you want to lead your children in discipleship, lead them to God and in God, then you must love God in truth by putting that word on your heart continually, letting it wash you. No shortcut. There's no pill, no seminar, no technique, no holy hop. There's nothing. 
We must continually become men and women of the Word. Let me just close with a story that I experienced. How many of you know who Dr. Francis Schaeffer is? A few of you. And hopefully some of you have read his works. Dr. Francis Schaeffer was a premier Christian philosopher, pastor, uh, Christian. He uh, was an amazing guy. He's written many great works like How Shall We Then Live? You may have heard of that. That's about the decay in Western culture and our response to it. He wrote, his seminal work was True Spirituality, very profound, lovely book. He wrote books on the environment, for example, like Pollution and the Death of Man, a very good treatise. He was a man with ultimate respect for life. He lived up in the Alps, and if he would see an ant crawling across the floor, he'd step over it. He just loved life. And he wasn't much for fashion. He, he had kind of stringy hair, a weak beard, uh, he wore knickers. He lived in the, uh, in the Alps, so maybe that's part of the requirement. I don't know. He probably had wooden shoes, too. I have no idea. That's Dutch. Oh, sorry. Confusing my ethnicities here. But he was such a special man. And I had the opportunity and the privilege to hear Dr. Schaefer on what was one of his last lectures. For all I know, it could have been his last, although I think he made it out to SoCal one, one other time to Biola my alma mater. But uh, I was in Indiana with Val. Val was getting her master's at Purdue and I was taking a year off seminary. And it was a snow-laden winter's evening in Winona Lake, just outside the campus of Grace Theological Seminary. In fact, a big storm had really come and gone, just dumped a ton of snow. And I remember it was a clear moonlit sky and how the snow almost had that bluish hue to it. You know, stuff of postcards. And it was cold, but it was comfortable. It was dry. And I, along with a bunch of people, our little church and 2,500 Christians, it must have been, crowded into a large community hall to hear this man. And it was really impressive. Um, he was really sick at this point. His body was ravaged by cancer. His death was imminent. He knew it. In fact, he had to lecture sitting down with a microphone pressed up against his lips because he was too weak. But I was impressed with a couple of things I, that have stayed with me to this day, obviously. One was his courage to serve, his faithfulness to serve, and the courage behind it. Because I'm, I'm a wimp when it comes to pain. Yet there he was. Obviously, he must have been in discomfort. He only had a week or two to live. But to the very end, he was exhorting. He was preaching. He was encouraging God's people. The second thing that really impressed me was that everything he taught and every question he fielded that evening, he rooted back in the Word of God. That, that just stuck out to me. Like I remember thinking, that's purposeful. He's passing on the baton to, to us because he knows he won't be around and we need more than his wit and wisdom. We need the Word. I was really impressed by that. And some of you, like I said, have been... In, impacted by his life and his works. But the, the little account, and it's just two paragraphs long, I'll close with this. The little account of his death, it's just two paragraphs that I read, is uh, it's a moving account, I think, of a man who loved and lived the Bible. So let me just read you from this account. It says, confined to bed, his family had arranged a stereo system in the room so he could enjoy fine music. And next to the bed, within easy reach, on a nightstand, what do you think lay there? His Bible. It's very telling, isn't it? Guys, death has a way of stripping us down to the bare essentials. The bare minimum. God, family, a few friends, prayer. For Francis Schaeffer, part of the non-negotiables, the essentials was the Word of God. I mean, there he was at death's door, right? Change the metaphor. He's about to cross that deep, dark, bridgeless, cold river of death that Bunyan talks about in Pilgrim's Progress. And there, strapped to his side, is his lifelong tool and companion, the sword of the Spirit. And it says, During his last moments of consciousness, as Handel's Messiah was playing in the background, and by the way, Handel's Messiah, my opinion, humble opinion, the most sublime piece of music ever written, put together, but Handel wrote the music. Who wrote the lyrics? God. 
It's all scripture put to music. Even what he listened to was scripture. During his last moments of consciousness, as Handel's Messiah was playing in the background, Dr. Schaefer reached to the Bible on the nightstand, opened it, and with affection and reverence, gently stroked his hands over the pages, repeating softly, precious, precious, precious. And with that, he slipped into the presence of God. He was a man, guys, deeply in love with his God, with a deep reverence for his word, and that little Presbyterian pastor impacted millions. Not simply because he was clever, but because his mind, his affection, affections, his actions were shaped by the word of God. And he really made it see that the Bible relates to everything in life, whether you're talking about family or philosophy. Its truth fit naturally, and it was to be pursued. He was a man of the word who had a faith to pass on, and in my opinion, did so in an exemplary ways. Guys, if we are to fulfill our roles specifically within our families, this is our, our focus of attention, we must be becoming lovers of God who love him in truth by filling our lives with the word of God constantly. You want to disciple your children? Pursue that. Pursue that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, Lord, for providing us with your law, your word, that is not obtuse and hard to understand. Some things are more difficult to understand than others, but Lord, your, your word is clear. You haven't left us in the dark. And you've given us this word to drink in, to saturate our minds, our, our hearts, our volition, so that we, Lord, might pass this great way of life to our children. We pray, Lord God, that you would help my brothers and sisters, including myself, to have, in varying degrees, a Copernican revolution in our thinking regarding our children. They are our charge, Lord. Help us to impact them for Christ and for eternity. For your sake we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Walking in the Promises. If you would like to learn more about our ministry or invite Marcelo to speak, visit us online at WITP.org.